Hello, everyone. My name is Grace Beatty, and welcome to Wicked Women, the podcast. On this podcast, I will be discussing with leading experts some of history's most infamous and maligned women. Within each episode, I do not look to excuse or dispute the wrongs committed by some of these women, but I do strive to bring a more holistic and rounded understanding of each particular woman's story. Step back in time and come on this journey with me as we discover the lives and legacies of these fascinating women. In today's episode, I will be discussing perhaps one of history's most famous royal mistresses, Madame de Pompadour. Discussing the life and legacy of Madame de Pompadour with me today is Professor Colin Jones, a scholar of cultural and social history in 18th century France. Keep listening to learn more. When Louis XV, all-powerful king of France, first laid eyes on the woman who had set his court ablaze, she was dressed as a shepherdess, while the imposing king was dressed as a plant. It was one of the king's least favorite events, a masked ball. But everyone who noticed the pair together would not have been naive enough to believe the meeting a coincidence. After all, this was Versailles, a palace full of schemers and social climbers and the king was known to have a penchant for newly arrived women at his court. But just as Versailles was full of schemers, it was also full of gossip and rumor. It is impossible to know if the young woman dressed as a shepherdess that night had a plan for steering her role as royal mistress to become one of the most influential mistresses in French history. But whatever her intentions, Jean-Antoinette Poisson, later known as Madame de Pompadour, would quickly cement herself at the king's side. Madame de Pompadour is most often remembered for her association with King Louis XV, as his close friend, confidant, and lover. But the other dynamic facets of Madame de Pompadour's life have been mainly lost to the shadows of history, subsumed by the smear campaign against the royal family during the French Revolution. She has been portrayed since then as frivolous, manipulative, and cunning, a predecessor to the scandalous Marie Antoinette. But who was this woman really, and how did she manage to hold on to the affections of a fickle king for two decades? Jean-Antoinette Poisson was born on December 29, 1721, in Paris, to financier François Poisson and his wife Madeleine de Lamont. Jean had a quiet, privileged upbringing. Educated in an Ursuline convent, where she honed her wit and social skills. In 1741, at the age of 19, Jean married Charles Guillaume Le Normand d'Etois, the man who had looked the other way during her 20-year relationship with the King of France. After becoming the King's mistress, rumors circulated that Jean's parentage was dubious, perhaps being the child of one of her mother's many supposed lovers. Jean herself never commented in detail on her early life, but regardless of parentage, her social status was shocking for the role she would eventually rise to. 
as Professor Colin Jones points out. She comes from. I mean, if you take it back a few generations, her family are. Are weavers, actually, they're just you know they're members of the third estate. They're commoners, as we we would say. But and the way that her family really、um, advances in the world is through the rather murky world of、uh, state finance,、uh, financing the monarchy. And her father becomes、uh, involved in that, involved in particularly in provisioning the army and things like that. But、uh, but then because he is quite an able,、uh, seemingly an able.、Um, Bureaucrat, I guess you would say. He gets picked up by some very major financiers, so he actually is within the、uh, sort of patronage network of some very powerful、uh, people. And some of the,、uh, one or two of those, become actually lovers of Madame de Pompadour's mother.、Uh-huh. And in fact, there is this. You know, I guess we we could do it by DNA if we could find any、uh, available. But there is the story that actually her, that she is not the uh, her, her father's uh, child. She is the father of one of these、uh, financiers. May or not be tr- true, but I mean, what is true is that that uh, that uh, those family financiers、uh, do. Patronise the family. They support the mother. The the、uh, the, the, the young、uh, Pompadour goes to the Ursuline convent, which is quite a high-paying one. It's a good convent, usually more for bourgeois, more for the for people not high nobles. But then she gets a lot of、uh, private tuition in all the arts of、uh, you know of the, the pleasurable arts like dancing and singing and、uh, theatre and all the rest of it. So she's got a whole set of private tutors and.、Um, What happens is that she sort of gets thrust into the king's bed in a way we could sort of talk about、uh, a bit, partly because of these guys behind her pushing her.、Uh, but once she's in place, people are saying, "Well, you know, this is not this is not right." I mean, the king is quite. I mean, we'll talk a bit bit about this. And the king, you know, her take on the king is really really important. But the king is a very timid man、uh, and sort of very reserved, rather melancholic. And it's a, he's married、uh, in the 1720s. His wife gives lots of children, but then she, her health sort of、uh, caves in a bit, and they don't appear to have sexual relations after the 1730s. Initially, in the late 1730s,、um, the king is、uh, everyone at court is amazed to discover that the king has, has a mistress and actually has a mistress for a little while, and he has the, the, a mistress、uh, from the very high nobility. Uh, and in fact, he has as mistress a sister, three sisters successively,、um, and they're all from a nobility which goes way, way back. We're talking to you know the time of the Crusades, virtually. You know, so this is like if you're going to have a mistress, okay, that's going to be where where it's、uh, like. But Louis the Fifteenth,、uh, uh, Louis the Fifteenth、uh, doesn't do that. He takes this woman who he's attracted to、uh, anyway, and and is、uh, is there in the position of wealth. So people are endlessly going on about her. And you know she has the unfortunate,、uh, you know, you can't help your name, but her her father's name is、uh, Poisson, which of course in French is is fish. So there's all sorts of you know something fishy going on here.、Uh, I actually I was very、uh, fortunate to、um, to work on, not really to discover because it was known before, but I did quite a lot of research on a a collection of drawings of、um, uh, cartoons. They're like caricatures, really. Uh, of uh, p- political life done by a very interesting artist, a man called Charles、uh, Germain de Saint、uh, de Saint Aubin, and、uh, the, it's a collection of、um, drawings which is at Waddesdon Manor in、uh, Buckinghamshire, and、um, they, you know, the, 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 this guy is an embroiderer. He goes to court. He's a court embroiderer. He knows Madame de Pompadour. He actually is really friendly to her. He teaches her drawing, flower drawing. 
when he comes home with all his friends and you know sitting around he draws these sort of rather horrible cartoons where she's seen as a fish you know she's so it's a great big bloated fish uh, lying out uh, on a on a sort of chaise long sometimes deliberately pastiching uh, some of the official portraits uh, of, uh, uh, of Adam de Pompadour. So yeah, the sort of social background that she's sort of more like a fishwife in some ways, uh, which actually you would you would say in French, uh, than than a sort of high aristocrat is something which she is finds very very difficult uh, uh, to negotiate, and she always has to you know that's always in the in the background in some ways. Jean lived during a tumultuous time in French history, where many of the poor were living on the edge of starvation while the nobility were living in some of the most awe-inspiring luxury at the Palace of Versailles. The French court was the trendsetter throughout Europe on fashion, architecture, dance, art, and sex. Monarchs throughout history have had mistresses, but the French turned it into an art and a position, maitre sans titre. Families throughout France knew that if their daughters were honored with the title, their fortunes would be made, at least for a time. The hope of illegitimate children could give a woman influence and wealth years after her sexual relationship ended. However, some may have been aware of the previous king, Louis XIV's mistress, Madame de Montespan, who ultimately married the king. Here is Professor Jones. In the 18th century, uh, the French court and the... um and the position of uh, someone who is called the maîtresse en titre, which we usually translate as the official mistress, is seen as quite extraordinary. But it's a very long tradition, in fact, going back to the uh, uh, 16th century, uh, that a king has a particular sexual sexual partner. Obviously, they're normally married or could be widowed. Um, and uh, she is the preferred one and has a position in court and people she usually has when, uh, you know, when they move to Versailles, certainly it happens, but even before that, uh, she would normally have a residence in the uh, royal residence. Um, the most famous, and you know, all of these kings of France in the 18th century, well, both of them, I guess you're saying, Louis XV and Louis XVI, always look back to Louis XIV. Louis XIV is the great king, you know, he's the great, yeah. Louis the Great, and he established Versailles and everything he did, you know, we should follow. Uh, and so in terms of ritual, they tend to follow very closely and ceremonial, just the way the court operates, she says. But in the latter part of his career, last couple of decades, really, his mistress is uh, a woman who he actually uh, has a secret marriage with, though it's not a public marriage, it's what's known as a morganatic marriage, um, with Madame de Maintenon, who's the uh, uh, very, very sort of uh, respectful and interesting figure, but not a high aristocrat in any way, and not a royal. And she is seen as someone who's very assiduous to support the king. And I think that Pompadour, looked, she would know about the royal mistresses moving into that position. So she would really see Madame de Maintenon uh, as uh, the, the, the figure to follow. Uh, when Louis XIV was uh, reigning, um, diplomats or you know ministers would come in and and see him, and dear old um, uh, Madame de Maintenon would be in the corner doing her tapestry, you know, on her, her lap there. And I think it's quite interesting that one of the quite a few portraits that we have of Madame de uh, Pompadour, Marquise de Pompadour, of course, one of those shows her on uh, with a tapestry frame. So I think she's sort of making a little, you know, I am I am following the Louis the Fourteenth uh, Madame de Maintenon uh, uh, model. It may have been with this intention that Jean was ready to catch the king's eye. As is the case with most royal mistresses, there is much speculation around Jean's intentions, ambitions, or culpability 
in attracting the king's notice. Jean never revealed details of her life with the king. What is known for certain is that Jean officially met Louis XV in 1745 at a masked ball. For Professor Jones, it seems perhaps a mixture of family and personal ambition that brought her to the attention of the king. She is almost literally thrust under the king's nose by these sort of uh, um, aristocratic financial networks who realize that in 1745 uh, that the king's sexual relationship with his wife, the queen, is very poor. And these earlier mistresses, one has died and a couple of the others have been put to one side. So they, everyone's thinking, let's get the king a, a mistress and let it be someone that we can sort of uh, control, you know, like a, a, a puppet in, in some ways. And so she actually has a, a small chateau in the forest, uh, in the forest around uh, Versailles where the king hunts. And so she's like, literally wheeled in her carriage that so the king will encounter, then he meets her and obviously it's a famous uh, and it's a wonderful, wonderful engraving by the uh, uh, the 18th century engraver, uh, Cochin, showing this incredible ball at, uh, it's a masked ball in Versailles in 1745. So everyone goes in disguise. And um, uh, the king famously goes as a yew bush. So, and he and all his like guard, his bodyguards go as sort of yew bushes. And you see these wonderful sort of topiary things. The king is in one of those. She, it would appear, goes as a, a shepherdess. And uh, anyway, they, they, that's where it's, they hit it off. And people, people initially think, well, okay, the king's just had sex with this. You know, she's a commoner. You know, that's not going to last. She sort of is thrust into this position of uh, being the king's, you know, king's sexual partner. It could have been a one-night stand and everything like that. But, you know, he becomes very infatuated with her, uh, sexually infatuated with her. And she sort of reads the room <laughs> in some ways in an incredibly able way. And one of the things she realizes uh, quite, she gets, uh, she probably gets tuition on this from people who've been at court and these high financiers who are behind her, if you like. But uh, the previous mistresses of the king uh, have been extremely unpleasant to the queen. And they sort of, uh, the queen is actually a Polish uh, uh, descent. She's not even a very sort of high royal in European uh, uh, terms. But she is around and the king is fond of her. And he realizes that these mistresses are sort of like being very snooty towards the uh, the queen, and he doesn't like it. So Pompadour realizes that, and she's always incredibly, incredibly respectful of the queen. The queen is actually joining in the uh, sort of mockery uh, to start with. But after a while, she realizes that Pompadour is perhaps not as bad as influence uh, on the king as, uh, as some, so sort of uh, goes along with it. And uh, what, in fact, in some ways, one of the... Um, you know, probably high points of Pompadour's life in terms of the way she thought of it was in, uh, I think it's 1756, but it was a moment when she becomes one of the sort of official ladies-in-waiting, the Dame mm -hmm. du Palais of the Queen, and the Queen has allowed her in. And that gives her, in a way, that gives her official status in a way that the, the position of official mistress doesn't really. This is absolutely, you know, at the high high end of, of the court. And so it shows that sort of, you know, a uh, the man Jean attracted in 1745 had been on the throne since 1715, after his history-making great-grandfather Louis XIV died. Louis XV, however, was never meant to be king, but smallpox and measles made little Louis the Dauphin in 1712. Having been predeceased by his great-grandfather, grandfather, father, mother, and older brother, the Dauphin ascended the throne as Louis XV alone at the age of five. Perhaps due to this trauma, Louis XV held on tightly to those 
that he was close to. Shortly after meeting Jean, Louis XV raised her to the rank of Marquise and cemented her name in history as Madame de Pompadour. On July 14, 1745, the newly titled Madame de Pompadour made her official entrance into court life, further ensuring her role by the king's side. Madame de Pompadour offered a sense of comfort and consistency in the king's life, but she also became attuned to his tics and preferences, never making him feel ashamed, but instead deeply loved. Reading the character of the king, and I think she's got him, you know, and I think, you know, we look at the king, I looked at him, I'm not as psychoanalytical or, you know, a historian in any way, but you just look at this child who's thrust onto the throne at five years old as a result of a whole pile of people who are very close to him uh, in terms of um, uh, family relationship, but also in terms of affection, have died. Between 1711 and 1740, his grandfather, his father, grandmother, yeah, then, then his elder brother, who was, the, who was going to be, the, who was the Dauphin, who was going to be the king, they all died. So you've got, you've got a kid who's thrust forward at the age of five years old into this uh, position. Obviously, initially he has a, a regent working for him, but in this incredible position with the sense that nothing in life is permanent. Everyone around him is dying, you know, and I do think this is quite a significant part of his uh, of his mentality going forward. And it's very noticeable, for example, that uh, the two figures from his um, early, his childhood and early uh, uh, life that he really, really holds on to, one of them was his nanny, uh, Duchess of Vantadour. And um, she is incredibly significant in his private life. And he, he's alleged to have cried real tears when she dies in the, in the 1740s. She's a sort of, you know, person he holds on to. But she does, you know, nurture him, look after him, make sure he's okay. And I guess, you know, looks after his mental as well as physical state. And then the other thing is that he gets quite early into um, close relationship with uh, the uh, abbe and soon to be the cardinal Fleury. And Fleury becomes his principal minister in 1726. He, he's like in his 60s, late 60s, 70s, and he dies when he's just short of his 90s in 1743. So I have this sense of... Um, Louis the Fifteenth of someone who perhaps finds it difficult to make relationships, but if he makes one, he wants it to last. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what happens with Pompadour, you know, because I mean we'll talk about it in a bit. But you know, she does last even after her initial reason for being uh, with the king, her, the the sexual relationship has has died away really. So so I think this sort of uh, sense of she realizes that he's someone who uh, who values long term friendship and support. Uh, and then I think the other thing she realizes about him is that he's not like Louis XIV, in that Louis XIV was like very ostentatious. He was fine about the court. He was fine about being in public. He loved it. You know, he made everyone bow and scrape and all the rest of it. Louis XV doesn't find that very easy. He, you know, because he's so dedicated to the idea of monarchy and the Louis XIV style, he, he definitely follows that routine. But you find him sort of like, Bunking off, you know, after I've had enough of this, you know, he doesn't take pleasure uh, from it. And he's got into the habit, even before Pompadour's on the on the scene, of, uh, you know, some days they, okay, they don't have the whole ceremonial, but he'll actually have these sort of more like private dinner parties, we'd call them, with maybe maybe a dozen, maybe 20, uh, uh, 20 guests. And, and it's sort of off limits, you know, they're not, uh, you know, they're all respectful for the, to the king. But the king actually serves people coffee, for example, you know, so it's, uh, you know, it's, it rules are off. It's off limits, if you like, for, 
for, for court ceremonial. And I think she picks up that he's much, much more himself. He's certainly much more relaxed, but much more himself in those uh, circumstances. And she realizes that with this very sad and melancholic background, he is a melancholic background. So in a, in a way, she has to be the mistress of the king's pleasures and distractions and entertainment. In the role of royal mistress, Madame de Pompadour became the focal point for the social life at court. From fashion to music to art to card games, the members of Versailles often looked to the royal mistress to set the trend. For Madame de Pompadour, she curated her style mainly from French designers, becoming what history professor Joan Jujan described as the minister of art. In addition to a trend-setting role, Madame de Pompadour also had to be sure she entertained the king. She's like a master of ceremonies in a, in a sort of entertainment way. She has to sort of keep him endlessly entertained so he doesn't become grim and miserable and melancholic and... Uh, uh, and grumpy and all the rest of it. And she is very good at that. She's very good at that. She, she um, I mean, you soon realize that, well, you know, she becomes the mistress uh, in 1745. And soon she's uh, laying on private theatrical. She's getting all the courtiers to play little parts. She's a very good singer. She's very, she realized the king is very keen on architecture. King's endlessly remodeling uh, uh, Versailles over the 18th century. So she shows interest. She looks at the, the drawings with him. She realizes that the king is trying to boost, a bit like Louis XIV's principal minister, Colbert, to boost French uh, industry, particularly the luxury industries. You, if you look at her portraits, and they're all, they're, just about all of them are stunning portraits. I mean, she's very uh, good looking in them, but you look at the dresses that she wears, are just stupendous, and um, they, they are classically the French styles of the moment. Her successor and legitimate successor down the line, Marie Antoinette, will be much more of the sort of the mannequin, if you like, of, mm. of uh, French fashion uh, in the late 1780s. But that is sort of pioneered a bit uh, by, uh, by uh, Madame de Pompadour, who's very conscious that wearing the latest fashions as created uh, uh, actually on the Rue Saint-Honoré in Paris, where most of the big dressmakers and uh, the big uh, textile firms are, is a very important uh, part of her, her role. That's not just, you know, this is to beautify. This is actually a sort of patriotic act. We're, we're boosting the economy here, which again is sort of going along with the king's, uh, uh, the king's role. It is a wonderful position if you're interested in the arts, because, you know, the, the, um, the, the king is trying to boost the arts. Um, the arts, obviously, French uh, arts, architecture, decorative arts, absolutely wonderful. And she does have, a, and of course, intellectual life as the Enlightenment is going on. She does realize that she has uh, a power of uh, patronage and support. I mean, some of that patronage is exercised for, you know, within the bureaucracy, within the court nobility. You know, there's all sorts of strings uh, pulling. But she does realize that it applies to the arts as well. So she's a patron of the arts. Initially, she's very supportive of the uh, the philosophes, the sort of Enlightenment uh, elite. Uh, and one of the great uh, uh, portrait uh, of her surrounded by not just the wonderful dress, but the books of Voltaire and Montesquieu, some of the illuminaries of the Enlightenment are behind her. So she plays that up quite a bit. Uh, and she also is a very good patron for the um, the decorative, well, for fashion, as I say, but also for the de decorative arts as well. And so her commissioning of paintings, she's a very interesting figure. I mean, again, and this is true at the time, and um, 
And, you know, by a lot of historians afterwards, they look at her and they say, well, you know, she's not a collector. She's a, you know, she's a bargain hunter. You know, she's just a, an amasser. She, 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 she just like buys anything. You know, she has no no value. But I think that's a very mean judgment, actually. And I don't think it's true. I think she, she does have real, she has taste, in other words. She's a, there's a certain connoisseurship. Uh, that she has, and which uh, which is exercised in uh, as as regards the uh, the arts, and that's partly you know because she's doing it because she you knows it's important for the king, but it's her personal taste as well. And I think she, she as you say, the her position allows her to, um, to to develop and to blossom, if you if you like, in those areas of cultural patronage. However, around five years after meeting, letters and diaries seem to suggest that in 1750 a change took place within their relationship. It appears that Madame de Pompadour had managed to gracefully transition her role from a sexual relationship to the king to one of genuine trusted platonic friendship. For the remainder of her time with the king, there was no sexual relationship, but she retained the title of official mistress until her death, being one of the only royal mistresses to exist in her role without sex. Obviously, he is very, very attracted to her. She continues, she then she becomes a figure and he buys her a chateau, gives her the type of marquise. The, the marquis who she's married to is sort of shuffled off into uh, a better, better better position. And she, I think she realizes the question of time before, you know, the sexual uh, attraction will, will possibly decline. And there are a lot of women in the court who are just looking for a sexual attraction uh, to her and being pushed by their, their, their sort of uh, their backers. So she realizes she has to offer something else. And I think that's what she does. She becomes a sort of entertainment uh, mistress uh, and, uh, you know, keeping the king always distracted, making sure he's happy, uh, playing up to his, uh, you know, look, looking after him, making sure that uh, his moods are, are, are fairly OK. And, and, you know, doing what he wants to do. He likes hunting, go and hunt. You know, she'll accompany him sometimes, often by, you know, she doesn't after a certain while. Um, you know, architecture, she encourages him to get interested in gardening, in botany, uh, architecture, he's already... So they have these shared interests. And I, I do wonder whether she's realizing that there's a, the, some of the, uh, you know, the charm uh, has gone by, the, by after about four or five years. Because in 1750, you start seeing... Um, the theme of friendship developing uh, in the way in which she is commissioning objects. There's a famous um, uh, uh, moment in 1750-51 where she commissions a statue of friendship, which she puts in the gardens there in a way which the king is going to come across, you know. So in some ways, she is sort of negotiating a shift, not a shift like out of court, but she she feels that, you know, just as um, the king felt the Cardinal Le Fleury was someone that he could trust, he doesn't want to lose her, so with the, with Madame uh, de Pompadour, he feels well. The sex, uh, the charm, the sexual charms have gone, but um, um, you know that friendship is more important. And I think that's that's the role that she 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 has already sketched out, and it makes that transition, which, as you say, is an absolutely uh, critical one. Really, she does hold the king's friendship, and in a way, that's that's. That's more difficult than being a mistress in some yeah. ways, because you know, if a mistress, you think, okay, there's another bus going to come along, another pretty woman's going to come along, you know, the king will, his eye will be turned, etc., etc. But this isn't based on that. That is based on real friendship and uh, well, and affection. You know, it's an affectionate relationship, and people, I think, they picked up on this with the king. You know, other people have, have, have read his character. They know that he, how highly. 
he values uh, friendship. So, so there's a sort of um, resentment about it, but I, I, I think in a way, a, you know, an acceptance that she's there. You know, I, I think if she was on a, I think she does negotiate this period 50-51. That, that must have been very tricky because I think a lot of people will be seeing this is the moment to go for the jugular, to try and get rid of her, to try and find another favourite that the king will will pick up on, you know. But, um, but yeah, in some ways the resentment must be higher. But on the other hand, I think the sort of acceptance of her role uh, vis-a-vis the king must be, must be uh, sort of significant. People do realise, especially in the latter years, she's quite sick. She is quite sickly mm-hmm. and fra- she's quite fragile as well. So that, I guess they sort of they're waiting for uh, by the end for, for for her death. She 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 can bridge that transition without too much of a, a, a of a problem. And people have to have to see that's happening. She also realises the king is a man of uh, sort of sexual appetites, and so she accepts and more or less overlooks the fact that he has a succession of short term uh, affairs. Um, Everyone knows this uh, at the court. It's sort of done fairly discreetly. Some of the people who criticize her say, uh, well, you know, she's acts like a procuress and you're pimping for the king. No evidence of that. I don't think that probably is the case. But she accepts it's happening. But what she does look out for is the the worry that uh, the king is going to have as his mistress some very high uh, aristocrat who actually will be preferable and will push her out. So there is, there's quite possibly uh, a bit of sort of maneuvering on her part when when the king's mistress does happen to be one of those uh, figures. But but all these mistresses are so fast rotating, uh, and the king will only take a durable and lastable mistress after the uh, like like Pompidou, after Pompidou's death, when it would be Madame du Barry, uh, which you know again is a, a figure from a lowly background, even lowlier than probably than 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 uh, Poisson uh, Pompidou, uh, but who will who will stay with him right till his the, the end of his life. For Madame de Pompadour, outside of the awareness that sexual charm can fade, there seemed to have been a negative emotional and physical toll the role had on her. Here's Professor Jones. So it is quite a tiring life, I must say, uh, being a a royal miss, because she has to be around, you know, when the king is around. And one of the things about uh, the king is that, again, following the Louis XIV model, he's supposed to live his life in public, you know, so everything is done. You know, there's a whole crowd of people while he puts his shirt on in the morning and takes it off in the evening. All the meals are public events and things like that. So she has to be perpetually on uh, on call. And that includes at the end of the day where they have a sort of, uh, you know, more festive sort of evening uh, with a lot of gambling. Everyone gambles in Versailles. So it's, people are gambling, gambling, gambling all the time. So she has to sit there. Now, we do know uh, fairly certainly, you know, all these uh, things about personal health are uncertain. But uh, it looks like she does have quite a fragile health, uh, Madame de Pompadour. She has, uh, for various reasons about her, she's come from what, what sort of we would say was a broken home her, her, herself and uh, is not uh, for initial part of her life isn't very well cared cared for her mother's not particularly interested and things like that um then they sort of hitch on to her as she gets older and um, more beautiful actually but um she always seems to have slight uh problem with her lungs uh probably she you know like we don't know very much about retrospective diagnosis of uh, uh, historical figures, but it probably is pneumonia. It might be tuberculosis. Uh, you know, it's one of those things. And that does make her quite frail. Her health is quite uh, frail. 
We also know that there's a rumor at court, and I think it probably is more than a rumor, that she's not terribly sexually dynamic, uh, if you like. She, she, uh, there's things, that, again, which link to her health, which people say uh, she is not sort of as, sexual, as interested in sex, if you like, as the king maybe uh, would like. And in the end, they, they move away from a sexual uh, relation, uh, relationship. So this is this sort of woman who's, who's quite fragile, who's aware that her uh, link to the king is based in it originally, and we can talk about that in a minute, on, on sex, who's going through all this uh, uh, performance, and it's very tiring. And quite a few people towards the end of her life, uh, uh, when they see her, notice how tired and uh, sort of slightly played out she is. There is a, you know, it is a very unpleasant uh, uh, part, because once, she's, once you're in the position of royal mistress, you're going to be perennially attacked by everyone because you're seen as too close to the king. You have the king's ear. You have power. You have influence. And there's um, in when she when uh, initially when she um, she becomes king's minister in 1745, there's a lot of uh, sort of scurrilous verse and writings against her. And several of these pick up on the on the uh, fact or not the fact on the supposition uh, that she suffers from some sort of vaginal discharge. There's some sort of sexual problem there. You know, that may just be a complete uh, fantasy. But it sort of figures with a, uh, a person who's, uh, as I say, whose health is quite uh, quite frail. Um, she does um, have children from her, her marriage, but no children uh, with, the, with the king. And it's possible that she may have uh, had a, uh, a couple of, uh, of miscarriages. So again, you know, her, her, her sort of uh, sexual health isn't uh, great, but that's probably part of a bigger picture of health. And just this, as I say, the ceremony, the publicness of this, uh, publicness, I should say, when she knows that quite a few people looking and smiling at her are probably hating her guts and wishing she was completely out, out of the way. So, so, you know, it sounds like, oh, that's great being the, the, the mistress of the most powerful king in, uh, in Europe. But actually, it's quite, it's quite a hard job in some ways. Within her role, both before and after the 1750s, Madame de Pompadour's close advisory role to Louis XV drew criticism from multiple factions. She was seen as a wily schemer, manipulating the king in decisions for her own gain, and not that of France. In a very similar way to a later famous woman at Versailles, Marie Antoinette, Madame de Pompadour was blamed for everything from famine, disease, the national debt, bad harvest, war, and political fumbles. As many women in relationships with powerful men throughout history would come to learn, it is far easier to blame the woman closest to that seat of power than the person who actually occupies it. After a short illness, Madame de Pompadour died in the spring of 1764. Louis XV nursed her throughout that final illness and was utterly devastated after her death. The memory of Madame de Pompadour remained an imposing presence at Versailles. The later mistresses of Louis XV and Louis XVI's wife, Marie Antoinette, were often compared to the infamous royal mistress in regards to their ambition, frivolity, influence, and scandal. As Professor Jones discusses... Any court, and you, you know, you've got that, that's one of the ways in which uh, politics is, and uh, power is conducted, particularly from the 16th century onwards through the royal court. Any court is going to have factions. You know, they're ins and outs, you know. So, uh, so it's, uh, 
the person who is close to the king's ear, king's ear whether it be a, a man in terms of a minister or a favorite or a woman, uh, uh, probably a mistress, is going to cause resentment. So yes, these figures are are seen as uh, you know they are the object of of hostility. And, uh, you know, everyone assumes they're going to go quickly. <laughs> uh, so, you know, what's held against them sometimes is longevity in some ways, rather than uh, uh, the, the sort of king having uh, sexual affairs and things, uh, things like that. But I tell you one of the things which I do think is very unfortunate, uh, and really it's not her fault in any way, but the, the way in which the um, 18th century is seen, the role of women in politics, does have, she does have this long-lasting influence in the way in which people look back on the 18th century court. And I think there are two things there, one of which is you know, her responsibility in a way, the other is nothing to do with her. And the first is that in 1750, 56, 57, she plays a very key role in the um, creation of, a, of an alliance, a diplomatic alliance with Austria. And that is very unusual because you know the previous two centuries, uh, the Bourbons in France and the Habsburgs in Austria have been like a daggers drawn in just about every conflict uh, uh, going. So it's a sort of what's called a sometimes called a diplomatic revolution, a, a re- reversal of, of of alliances. She plays a key role in that. She she works with this uh, Austrian uh, ambassador or well, envoy, we should say, a guy called Star Hemberg, who, who's floating around Paris and Versailles in fifty six, fifty seven, and people realise she's playing a part uh, in this. So straight away, that's you know, a lot of people have have their nose put out of joint by this because the Austrian alliance will mean you know change of not just of alliances but a change of patronage at court in all sorts of uh, key ways. The other thing that happens is that the um, Austrian alliance is disastrous for France in the short term because they get they go straight into the uh, Seven Years' War, which is probably one of the most terrible wars that France fights. You know, you could talk about the Hundred Years' War in the in the Middle Ages, which doesn't go too well. Uh, so you could look forward to 1940, 1944. But the Seven Years' War is disastrous. They lose Canada. They lose most of their overseas uh, colonies. They're completely crushed uh, by England. So she's really seen as, you know, well, it, France's defeat is women getting involved in politics too much. And that's a story that people take out, you know, at the time, but it stayed around in the historiography. And then secondly, the second point, which I say has nothing to do with her. She's been long in the uh, in the tomb by, by the time this has happened. But with Marie Antoinette, because the, of course the queen is the queen. She's not a mistress, you know, and queens, you know, dead queens, they have some sort of residual power. But when uh, Marie Antoinette comes to power and then starts acting slightly independently uh, and you know, builds up her own household, tries to build up her patronage, doing the sort of things that Pompadour did as well, cultural patronage and things like that, people get very much on their high horse about this. This is women in politics. You know, if the king had had a mistress, uh, Marie Antoinette would live, have lived a blameless life. But, you know, the king <laughs> is very devoted and sexually very timid anyway. He never has, never has a mistress. So which is very unusual for French kings. But um, uh, so poor old Marie Antoinette gets it in the in the neck. But as a result of that, you know, the, the idea is that, you know, French politics completely dominated by the court. The court is spending too much money on the cultural projects of Marie Antoinette, just as they did Pompadour, just as they did with Madame uh, Dubarry. So so I think that's had a quite lasting effect, even not in just to 
you know, the way people sort of read um, read the 18th century romantically or, or whatever, but actually among historians, you know, that this sort of courtly frivolity which Pompadour has opened the door to uh, is something which, you know, uh, politics has to be masculine, it has to be male, women should be kept out. And that is the sort of uh, uh, message going forward, really, which has nothing to do with her, which, but, but has definitely contributed to this very bad reputation that she's enjoyed over the centuries. Much of Madame de Pompadour's story has been lost to the wider events that would come to define the later part of the 18th century in France. Rather than remembered for her political acumen, patronage of the arts, or level of education and wit, Madame de Pompadour's name has become synonymous with excess, from hairdos to fashion designs to champagne glasses to a vain personality. The role of the royal mistress is a lonely space to occupy. Friendships are based on personal gain, rumors swirl about every aspect of your life, and even the person behind your title, the king, may never know the true person behind the glittering mask. But while the road is lonely, the legacy is often damning. Many royal mistresses are remembered for nothing more than their sexual prowess and frivolous lifestyle. For Professor Jones, Madame de Pompadour exhibited more wit and skill than most, and deserves to be remembered for it. Someone who's maneuvered into her position, or falls a bit of maneuvering by these uh, backers, if you like, who are looking for uh, to, to find a mistress who they, that they can use as their sort of puppet, if you like, mm-hmm. uh, and um, and also sexual uh, sexual favor with, with the king, and someone who finds herself in that position and thinks her way through it and uh, lives. Uh, outlives the sexual relationships, and I think cuts the marionette strings, actually, to a considerable degree. So, I mean, she still actually does look after her family and uh, her close, uh, the people who have been her backers, the, the sort of dynasties there. But she is her own person, and she uses that position uh, in a way which, you know, the Queen doesn't use, it, as I was just saying, really, as a, as a patron, a patron of the, uh, the arts and letters, and of the, of the, of the, particularly of the decorative arts, fashion, and all, all, all the rest of it. I think, you know, most people would say, what a shame she did get involved in the uh, uh, alliance with uh, Austria. If, you know, that things would probably have been better, and certainly would have been better for her reputation if she hadn't, hadn't uh, done that. But it's a woman of very considerable uh, uh, gifts uh, who has had the, as I say, this ability to read read her situation, read the room, to realize what she had to do, which was essential for her retaining the king's favor beyond a sexual one, and, and also not create the sort of waves uh, in, in the, uh, basically the queen and her supporters uh, at court in a way that would, uh, would uh, threaten her own uh, position. So, so someone who has, you know, considerable psychological acumen vis-a-vis, you know, the way in which court works, and also very considerable political acumen as well, perhaps pushed too far when she sort of goes over like one bridge too far in some ways to, uh, to try and influence diplomatic arrangements, but, but you know, who, who uses her power in a way which um, uh, is very positive in terms of the promotion of the arts. You know, this is really someone and a very interesting uh, trajectory to a life which, um, you know, you would, it could have been nothing, could have been over in uh, you know, a couple of weeks or a couple of months and things, but she's te- she's built a career, if you like, in a way which um, uh, is very positive, which has been a support to the king uh, and, um, you know, has tried to do what he wanted in terms of boosting the, uh, uh, the economy through the, through the luxury arts and semi-luxury arts in particular. Basically, Madame de Pompadour is someone much more interesting than her legend. <laughs>